Anna, what if I told you that there was a huge government conspiracy with corporate interests mm. to cover up this massive, massive problem of heart disease, which ended up killing tens of thousands of people. You could start that sentence and go so many different places at the end. <laughs> Fill in the blank, really. Yeah. But today's conversation is about something very odd. Cooking oils, fats, lard, butter, Crisco, and whether or not they're good for you or bad for you, the history of them, and why we should or should not eat them. Mm -hmm. You know. And so today, I wanted to focus on trans fats, because mm -hmm. that's like a one of those hot topics you'll see in women's health magazines. I guess men's health talks about it too, but you'll see it everywhere. I have no, you just said the word magazines and I don't know how old you are, but we don't have <laughs> right. those who, anymore. Who reads magazines? <laughs> I actually used to have subscriptions to magazines. I believe you. I mean, I, I <laughs> got, <like> nerd. <laughs> I got a subscri uh, subscription to a magazine as a Christmas gift a few years ago really? by someone who's like in, in their sixties or seventies. That so, explains it. Yeah. <laughs> When I think of trans fats, before mm. I spent weeks of my life researching this topic, mm. I just thought of trans fats as something like generally you should avoid mm -hmm. because that's what these labels on food products were telling me. You go to the grocery store, you see something and it says 0% trans fats mm -hmm. or zero grams of trans fats. And there was this little cartoon heart next to it. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh, it's good. Like, you know, it's heart healthy. There's no trans fats. Mm -hmm. So what exactly are trans fats? If you look at any vegetable oil, there's a combination of a dozen or so different fats. You have mm -hmm. polyunsaturated fats, saturated fats. You have monosaturated fats. Trans fats are just one of those types of fats. Mm -hmm. A very small percentage of them are naturally occurring. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the invention of Crisco mm -hmm. that this partially hydrogenated formula that it actually started creating these trans fats. Right. No one knew what they were and no one knew they were going to be a problem. There's really two types of trans fats. There's naturally occurring trans fats that can come from animals and things like that. that I think it has to do with, and there's this whole chemistry thing behind it, but it's the way that the bacteria in the gut reacts with different uh, proteins and that creates like a certain percentage of trans fats in meat and eggs and dairy and things like that. But it's very, very small. Mm. But then there's artificially occurring or artificially made trans fats. Okay. So that's made in like the lab, you know? And so I was wondering well, when was the first time we started to use trans fats? And then that brought me back to Crisco and the whole thing with Procter and Gamble back in the 1900s, right. which is this whole story. Did we talk about Crisco yet on, on the podcast or just by ourselves? Because I feel like we've been talking about Crisco for such a long I time. I don't think we've mentioned Crisco <laughs> okay. on the podcast before. We've mentioned in our personal lives. Everything we're talking about here, we talk about extensively behind the scenes. Like a lot. Too much even. <laughs> but basically, back in the 1900s, well, it was really like 1880, 1870, there were these two guys, mm. Procter and Gamble. So mm. Procter came from England. He made a candles. He had a candle making factory. And the candle making factory burned down, which mm. I think is a little ironic, right? <laughs> And it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. You know, so he's like, screw this, I'm moving to the US. You know, it's back in the 1800s. Mm. And then Gamble, he fled Ireland during the Irish potato famine, mm. and he was a soap maker. Mm. And so they kind of made similar products, candles and soaps, they used similar ingredients. Not everything was an overlap, but some of them were. By complete happenstance, Procter and Gamble ended up marrying two women who were sisters. And that's how oh. they met. That's how Procter and Gamble actually met. So they were just at a cookout, a family cookout, <laughs> and they started being like, dude, why don't we just go on business, bro? And he's like, let's do it, bro. P&G. But anyway, fast forward, they started to make um, bars of soap for the first time because back in the day, you would get soap from these general stores. They mm. had wheels of soap. 
Who has wheels of soap? And what they would do is they would cut off with a knife a piece of the soap. They'd weigh it. They'd package it up in that brown paper, you know, tie it with a little uh-huh. string and hand it to you. Uh-huh. And that's how you bought soap. Uh-huh. But they were like, we're going to do something no one has ever done before. We're going to make the first bar of soap that's mm. pre-packaged. And so they named it Ivory Soap, which was where Ivory Ooh, Soap came from. Nice. But it became really popular. Everyone loved the ivory soap i mean the name is cool right but it was expensive to do that because it was very manual the process of doing that and so they had to recoup the cost somehow they were using at the time palm oil and coconut oil sort of a combination of the two Mm -hmm. you know but they wanted to find something cheaper at the time one of the things that was really abundant was cotton seeds because the cotton industry was booming and there was the invention of eli whitney's cotton gin and so you had this byproduct in the textile making factories who are sorting out all this cotton and removing all the cotton seeds like what do you do with all these cotton seeds so they were everywhere and they were like kind of like a waste product Mm. not many people used them you just throw them out or some people tried to use them as fertilizer and things like that so they were like okay so why don't we try to press this and make some oil out of it Mm -hmm. and so they tried to start doing that but it was like kind of like a gross product yeah and so they had to really extract this like gray disgusting liquid deodorize it bleach it make it look all nice and clean Mm -hmm. and then they were like okay we finally have an oil that doesn't smell and looks okay right let's try to use this for soap Mm -hmm. but the problem and this is the big problem they had with it is like okay we have this cheap oil now but it's not solid at room temperature Mm. it's liquid and so they couldn't make it they couldn't make bar. it into a bar. Yeah. So they could cool it down and make it into a bar. That was their chance of doing like shower gel. Shower gel. <laughs> you missed it, PNG. I think Unilever and Johnson and Johnson got ahead of years you. Years before it happened. Yeah. It was their chance, but anyway. They going. missed it. So they they created this lab and they were trying to figure it out for a long time until eventually in 1907 there was this German scientist mm-hmm. who just reached out to them with this letter saying, "Hey, I've got a formula for a way to make your cottonseed oil Mm. solid at room temperature and he called it the process of hydrogenation Mm -hmm. and it's called hydrogenated because you're literally just adding a double carbon bond into there a little bit of hydrogen atom when you add a hydrogen atom to that chain of fatty acids Mm. it makes it solid at room temperature Mm -hmm. i am fascinated that you learned so much about the industry of soap to talk about trans fats it was yeah and this all i promise this (laughs) all comes back this. (laughs) this all comes back to trans fats but you have to learn about this history to know where it came from So anyway, 1907, Mm -hmm. they get the formula from this German dude Mm. to make hydrogenation. And it had a lot of other benefits too. Like the process of hydrogenation, it extended the shelf life, Mm. made it expire much longer down the road, which was huge back in the early 1900s. Because like late 1800s, there weren't all this transportation that we had today. Right. You know, Henry Ford was a little later, you Mm -hmm. know, so you're thinking like, they had steamboats and they were going around basically canals and rivers. Right. The Crisco Revolution made it so that long-term transportation of these fats mm. were actually doable. And they they were very successful with it. And they started making their cottonseed oil solid at room temperature. Mm-hmm. They would chop it up and put it into bars. Mm-hmm. And their business was booming. And their profit margins were massive because no one else was really using cottonseed oil for many other things right and so they had a cheap very effective product that people loved they looked at this cottonseed oil that was hydrogenated Mm. and it was kind of creamy and they were like you know what we could probably sell this as a food product because it looks a lot like lard that food product that they tried to market to the american people 
they called Crisco. Mm -hmm. Everyone was using animal fats for cooking and all those types of things. So it was kind of a really difficult sell Uh because you're trying to convince the entire country to stop using butter and lard and use a completely different product. Mm -hmm. They hired the J. Walter Thompson Agency, which were very much the Mm. original Mad Men. Super interesting story in and of themselves. At the time, they were a pretty small organization for an advertisement company. And they were the first one-stop shop on being able to have designers and writers and people who could market this and pitch ideas. So they came out with eight alternative marketing strategies, and they tried them in all the major metropolitan areas to see what was the most successful. And what they found was they needed to basically start spamming women's magazines. So that comes full circle on the women's magazine. (laughs) So they spammed them, and they basically said... This was how you attained a higher class of status. Like Mm -hmm. your grandmother used the old lard and butter, but Mm -hmm. younger, more successful people, the modern woman uses the Crisco. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole story behind that name and everything. But they wanted to create something crisp and clean sounding and Mm -hmm. something that would be like, ooh, you know, this must be good. It's like all vegetable is what they put on the label. All vegetable. So it was a marketing strategy, right? Just like on Mad Men where they were trying to sell cigarettes. Cigarettes, And they came up with it's toasted. Yeah. Means absolutely nothing. But it sounds like, ooh, it's toasted. What do they call it? They call it clean washing. Like advertising, you basically you basically change the verbiage around a par- a product to make it sound cleaner and healthier and things mm-hmm. like. So that's exactly what they were doing. So half of it was just normal in my mind was just like normal advertising where they're trying to make the the label look good and everything. Mm-hmm. But the other half was like a kind of a little bit sketchy and fraudulent because mm-hmm. they were making all these health claims. And back in 1907, there weren't any regulations around health claims. You could you could basically say anything you wanted mm-hmm. and no one could come and like sue you like that. It was 1907. It's not 2023 where, Mm -hmm. you know, you could spill coffee on yourself and sue the manufacturer, you know, or the distributor. And they also started, in addition to marketing to women, they got testimonials and they were paying these groups of scientists to say it was healthy, you Mm -hmm. know, whether or not there were studies done. It's just, well, scientists say it's healthy, so it must be healthy. They got Mm -hmm. testimonials from pastors and rabbis Mm -hmm. to try to sell to the Christians and the Jewish population. And they were doing all these things. And after that, the marketing completely took off and started booming. And it Mm -hmm. became their number one bestseller. They made billions of dollars, inflation adjusted. It just basically took over the country by storm. Mm -hmm. And so everyone was switching from lard and butter to this, I guess you could call it a factory oil. Right. It's a lot cheaper too. A lot cheaper. And that's like the history of a lot of products where, you know, we look at something that was like, well, why do we do that? It's like, well, it was because it was a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. It worked well for Mm -hmm. what it was trying to do. Yeah. And it wasn't until later that they figured out maybe it wasn't the most healthy thing to do in the first place. And I understand why we switch mostly if you're young and broke, like why you do the cheaper product, because the cheaper product, uh, many of them started existing as a response to people not being able to afford things or not have access to things. So that's great, you know, but when you grow up and you get older and you're able to switch, you know, those things are really cheap and not so great for you to something that might cost more, but it's better, then you're just investing in yourself, you're investing in your health. So I feel like a lot of the problems that we have is we never make that switch. You just get the cheap thing that is clearly not good and then you keep using it until you die. And then, you know, some of those things are responsible for health problems that we have. So you're actually spending more in medical bills and, you know, surgeries, et cetera. It wasn't really until decades later 
that you started having this rise in coronary heart disease and mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease and people dying from heart attacks in greater numbers than they usually did. Mm-hmm. People didn't know what it was from. It was kind of coincidental that <laughs> when the entire country switched to vegetable fats from animal fats, mm-hmm. a lot of people started having these issues. Right. So people were looking into it. And at the same time, Procter & Gamble started becoming aware. And so they started doing some other sneaky things. And <laughs> they went to the AHA, the American Heart Association. Right. Um, and they tried to essentially buy them out a little bit. And they said, mm-hmm. you know, why don't we give you guys a free platform right. to have a radio show? Mm-hmm. It's the equivalent today of saying, hey, we'll pay to give you a podcast. Yeah. You got to think, why would Procter & Gamble, a for-profit manufacturing company, want to pay money and give a platform to the American Health Association? Right. There's really no connection there. It's a little odd that they would specifically pick them. Mm-hmm. But they gave them a platform. And over their first week of a radio show mm-hmm. they started raking in millions and millions of dollars to support it got their name out there and then this nonprofit grew into one of the biggest nonprofits today mm-hmm. so that's actually on the AHA's website mm-hmm. if you read their history it says on their actual website that they had this radio show from Procter and Gamble and mm-hmm. that that gave them most of the funding that allowed them to open offices all across the country right. become one of the biggest nonprofits and so the AHA at the same time started to say oh this is actually a great product and they started like being the scientist's voice right. behind Crisco right you know which they had no scientific backing for whatsoever but they were getting paid from PNG and so they decided to go ahead and you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Yeah. This was like a, a really fierce debate back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, especially it all started emerging in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But you had these activist organizations, these scientific bodies, you had corporate America. At this point, it wasn't just in the 80s and 90s. It wasn't just Procter & Gamble using Crisco. Right. It was everyone using yeah, Crisco. Yeah, now it's in it's in everything. Everything. Everything was partially hydrogenated. It was, it was such a great uh, alternative because like I said it made things last a lot longer mm-hmm. and it made things shelf stable and it was just such a great product functionally and so Burger King was using it and their fats and all these different companies were using it and so slowly corporate America was like this is a great idea but it was in the mid 1990s that there was this report from the Center of Science and Public Interest that started to say that oh, this stuff might actually be pretty bad for you and it raises your LDL or your bad cholesterol and it could Mm. be causing all these heart attacks that we've been seeing. And so people really started to worry, but it started triggering a lot of companies coming together and saying, we might not be able to use this partially hydrogenated process much longer. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go back to butter or lard. Right. So what happened was that they started funding a study of their own because they thought if we just pay the right scientists, we can get them to do exactly what P&G did with the AHA. They ended up funding a study with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And eventually the scientists came to the conclusion that Again, partially hydrogenated oils creating trans fats was actually a direct correlation to all the heart attacks they'd been seeing. Mm. So they freaked out, their study backfired, and then the NPR came out with this bombshell article citing this study. And slowly over time, when people started figuring out trans fats were directly related to all of these deaths with heart disease and things like that, mm-hmm. then you actually had the FDA stepping in in mm. 2015, which, which is so, so long after when it was actually a problem and right. actually created. It's like a hundred years, over a hundred years later later right the fda is like guys i got this hold my beer (laughs) and so they create this rule saying that not only do manufacturers have to put on labels exactly how many trans fats are on there Mm -hmm. you know now you see it on the labels all the time Mm -hmm. but by 2018 so they gave companies three years to basically phase out 
their artificial trans fats. Right. Which I thought was like incredibly generous. Like if they right. really knew at the time that <laughs> yeah. it's like this is killing people, yeah. like, you know, what? give them three years. <laughs> so they gave them three years to phase out their trans fats. And then WHO called for the elimination um, industrially for the whole world. And this is the chart showing the number of deaths per country that have been directly related to trans fats, with the mm -hmm. United States being a clear front runner. Yep. We also got India, Egypt, China, Pakistan, Russia, etc. Here's the interesting part, and we mm. were just talking about this, was the FDA kind of created a tiny little loophole, mm. you know, throwing a bone to these companies saying, if you have less than 0.5 grams of trans fats per serving, you can still technically call it zero grams of trans fats, mm -hmm. which is kind of ridiculous in my opinion. So they're still allowing them to have some. Mm -hmm. So even if you see something that says zero grams of trans fats, if you look on the back and it says partially hydrogenated anywhere in the ingredients list, right. you can have a guarantee that there are trans fats in there. Right. You know, so you look at um something like Ritz crackers. So this still has partially hydrogenated cotton sweet oil in it, but it says zero grams of trans fats on the front. <laughs> right. So if it's 0.4 grams of trans fats, it'll still pass. But with 140 crackers, the serving size, I think, is five crackers. So in the whole container, it's still 11.2 grams of trans fat. That's wow. a lot of trans fats. Yeah. You know, and so this is this is something that's still around today, mm -hmm. even though there's well-documented evidence. No one really debates this at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll see YouTubers on both sides that say, like, different things like, oh, you should be eating a vegetarian diet or you should be eating a paleo diet or a carnivore diet or right. a, you know keto diet there's so many different youtubers who disagree no one is disagreeing about trans fats mm -hmm. this is one of the most well-documented things out there period mm -hmm. the fact that it took uh, companies and um, researchers so long to learn about all of this just shows that one innovation is necessary uh, but it comes with a cost like anything new you know nothing about Right. besides what you discovered you know there's all these unintended consequences of your product that you know nothing about and it's a lie to say that you know everything about it because you don't know and then it took them a hundred years to come out with all the data necessary to say like yeah this is actually very literally a hundred years so any companies now that just made something up and say like this is better you know this beyond burger is better than an actual burger because of this and this like how to how the heck do you know? They don't. We just we just have guesses, right? And and I feel like a lot of health choices, at least for me, I don't base so much on what's out there because my lifespan is too tiny for all the data necessary for me to make an accurate choice, you know, based on truth and reality. So if I just wait to see, you know, what they're going to say about this, what they're going to say about that, I'm, I might just be consuming the wrong things all the time. For me, it's just important to be, you know, um, instinctive about it. Right. Like, Use your own intuition and logic and reasoning. Like this, this stuff, you couldn't eat it before. You can't. It's not edible until you deodorize it. You use, and you bleach it. I think you have to use an industrial solvent like hexane. I actually... have no idea what that even is. What is even that? <laughs> it's the solvent. You got to think like acetone is a solvent, right. rubbing alcohol. Hexane is this extremely toxic industrial solvent that mm -hmm. they use to extract the oil out of the seeds themselves. So mm -hmm. you're using hexane to get the seed oil out. 
Right. And then you're using deodorizers to make it not smell. Right. But it's still this gray, murky liquid. So they use bleachers to bleach it out. Right. And then after, I think it's around 13 industrial steps, mm -hmm. you have a product that can actually be consumed right. without making someone throw up. Right. So for me, like, I don't have to understand what trans fats are and, you know, how they were created. And blah, blah. It helps. But... You can't possibly know everything about everything, but you can know like, okay, so where did this come from? And it depending on how long was the process from where it started to me eating it, then I just make a decision. Like it doesn't feel like I should be eating this at all because 13 steps ago, I wouldn't have, you know? Right. So I feel like looking at things like that, it just make us a more realistic a point of view of how you choose the products that you consume or not instead of just you know waiting for an expert to tell you something i hate that word so much i hate what the last couple of years did with some words and one of them is experts ah it just irks me the wrong way because you can study something your whole life and that's great you probably is going to be you probably are going to be more competent about talking about something than most people you know but there are certain things that you can't possibly know everything there is to know about that thing and i'm okay with that i've i've seen people that i um i i hold in high regard and and i i like following their their podcasts and their youtube channels and things like that mm -hmm. because they're very honest about mm -hmm. the things that they don't know they right. say this is what i believe because of these things right but no one knows yeah and i'm just giving you the best information we have at the time yeah you know that that's where we're at right but what really bothers me is when people say things with such certainty like there's no possibility for a data to ever prove them wrong yeah. and it's thinking well People were thinking pretty confidently back in the 1900s, mm -hmm. and then they ended up being wrong about trans fats mm -hmm. and saying, oh, there couldn't possibly be corporate fraud and all these right. things. Like, that's a conspiracy theory. It's like, well, it was actually true. Yeah. This happened with trans fats. It's right. very well documented. Just for further research, there's this interesting book that I found called Deceit and Denial, mm -hmm. The Deadly Politics of Industrial Pollution. So it goes into a lot of the different things that followed the same story as trans fats. Right. You know, you had these industrial aerosols and you had these room deodorizers and you had these things that were very unhealthy mm -hmm. and people earlier on the manufacturers knew that they were unhealthy but they covered it up mm -hmm. and then it only came out later and they mm -hmm. had to pay these massive fines mm -hmm. i mean this happened with um lead paint mm -hmm. you know it was a, it was a great addition to paint because it made it dry faster and mm -hmm. last longer and, mm -hmm. it, and the color was more vibrant so it had a lot of benefits, but it also was killing people. Right. You know, and you had that with asbestos. It was an awesome fire retardant. It mm -hmm. was being used in clothes and insulation and all these different things. But then it started to get in people's lungs and kill them. Mm -hmm. So you have all these things that were like great ideas, right. but then they created other problems. Yeah. And so that's the story of innovation. You right. create something that solves a problem, right. but it creates a new host of problems, which you have to in turn solve as well. Right. And that brings us to seed oils. <laughs> yeah. All of this, by the way, started by we wanted to know more about seed oils. And then you got obsessed with trans fats and it was like, we have to talk about trans fats first. So instead of doing one podcast, we're going to do two podcasts because we've been talking for so long. This has just been about trans fats. But you know how that debate was raging back in the 70s, 80s and 90s about whether or not trans fats were bad? Mm -hmm. That's now settled. What the new debate is, is whether or not seed oils or any vegetable oils, whether right. those are bad. Yeah. And that is extremely contentious right now. Yeah. You can find very reputable, well-established, well-researched doctors on both sides of that aisle of the debate right now. Yeah, where it's like we're living the 
earlier We're living century. it again. Everything again. repeats yeah. itself. It's a <laughs> yeah. new innovation. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's trying to figure out are seed oils good or bad. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. So stay tuned. Well, thank you guys for watching. Share this with anyone that you think could benefit from it. Comment below. Uh, it's on podcast. I guess you can't comment. But Well, you can comment on YouTube. Comment we'll below if you're watching on YouTube. Yeah. And we'll see you guys in the next podcast. Bye. Bye.